0: In this episode of the Construction Differences podcast, I am interviewing Tanya Tichkowski. Tanya Tichkowski is a professor at the University of Toronto, Ontario Institute. She's the program coordinator of the Social Justice Education Program. Tichkowski's approach to disability studies is informed by cultural studies and interpretive sociology supported by the versions of feminist theory, queer theory, and Black studies that take on a phenomenological orientation. Tanya, thank you so much for uh, being here with me today. Um, Hi, Julia. <laughs> <laughs> um, to, so to get started, I was wondering if
1: you could tell me a little bit about yourself, your work and anything you'd like to share. Hmm, let's that's, that's open. Uh, I'm a professor at the University of Toronto at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education in a, department, a very small department called Social Justice Education. And it's a unique department in that it brings together people from Black studies, um, anti-colonial studies, feminist studies, and one or two of us who are doing disability studies. But what's unique about this place to work there is that all those intersections between feminist studies, Black studies, disability studies, um, the students who come into our classrooms bring those intersections or interweavings together and it means that it's a pretty dynamic place uh to be uh thinking about issues of embodiment and politics and justice and education so i've been there now 16 years i think and before that i taught sociology interpretive sociology and disability studies um at a smaller liberal arts university on the east coast of canada and i don't know i've uh I've been involved in disability studies, like my partner is blind and a scholar in disability studies, and I'm dyslexic. And we engage with a lot of students who might like think or move or learn differently. And I've just tried to incorporate that into how do we make and find the world meaningful. And that's been sort of behind, I think, a lot of my publications or um, research projects or course design it's just like an interest in how do we make our spaces and our relations meaningful Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um instead of what causes us to treat each other badly or what causes each to treat each other well I'm more interested in as we interact what meanings are made and that puts us back into the context Mm-hmm. that we're interacting in. So I can see our relationship to spa- an interest in space mm-hmm. as a, a kind of context mm-hmm. that people would draw on for as they interact or be blocked from as they interact. That's really interesting.
0: Um, what was your education like? And did you always have an interest in disability studies or did you come across it somehow through, you know an experience or a
1: person or um, a course? Yeah. I always had an interest in disability and different embodiments, especially um, related to the mind and, you know, suffering a society in a way that is unexpected. I was, uh, even as a kid, I was really interested in that, but I don't think, this is going to date me a little bit. I don't think disability studies really was like a thing for me to find out about until I was really close to the end of my PhD. So my PhD was about artists conceptions or interpretations of creativity. Mm -hmm. And they, some of them talked about disability as a form, as a potential form of creation, a constraint, but also creation. Mm -hmm. And that got me starting to look sort of, so that's 1997 and I'm starting to hear about disability studies. And Shelly Tremaine is a PhD student at the time. And I think I heard about her work in disability studies, Mm -hmm. but I hadn't seen the internet at that point. So I got a job in Eastern Canada and saw the internet, Googled or, you know, searched for something in Deviance Mm -hmm. because I was teaching deviance and social control. Mm -hmm. And then this whole world opened up of disability studies and learned about the social model of disability and just spent, it was like I finished my PhD and started a new PhD almost. Mm -hmm. Just so exciting uh, to know that there was something called disability studies. But I had, through phenomenology and philosophy and feminist philosophy, I had always had an interest in embodiment, like the work of Margaret Shildrick and embodying the monster. So that book's out about that time too. And Donna Haraway's work Mm -hmm. and the the sense that perception is organized by a culture the coming through phenomenology. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was always sort of bubbling about but I didn't know that there was a thing called disability studies probably until about 1997. I think that's also when the first disability studies reader comes out with Leonard Davis. And then in the UK, the first disability studies reader of by Shakespeare, that comes out about the same time. So it all just sort of popped all at once for me. Yeah.
0: I'm interested how this, the timing works out, like how you came across all this knowledge, you know, this production, reproduction, and then circulation. What was that like? And did you have a network of people that you were talking to at the time? Or was it kind of your own research and your own exploration that led you to find all this literature?
1: I I moved from Toronto, a big university that had computer systems, but didn't really supply them to grad students, to a small university on the East Coast, like small as in 4,000 students and 5,000 people in the town. But they did supply faculty members. I'm a new faculty member on an eight-month contract, and I had the computer and this internet. (laughs) And it's weird to say it now. That opened up what disability studies was. And once I knew it was even a way to search and a, a field that was developing in the UK and the USA, there wasn't anybody there doing disability studies. My partner and I were who's blind, Rod Michalco, we just immersed ourselves in all of this literature and took that that pathway into it ourselves. Mm -hmm. So it was an accident of fate,
0: I guess. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I I don't think I've come across anyone who's had that. And I think it's interesting that even when the Internet was just beginning, like this information and literature was Mm -hmm. available through like a simple search
1: It sounds like. And well, Rod had just finished publishing right about then, I think 1998 too, The Mystery of the Eye and the Shadow of Blindness. So, and this was more of a phenomenological approach into how does culture organize blindness and sight, but wasn't really informed by, there was some work going on in the stories of blindness and how blindness and knowledge were connected in a more sociological fashion and that's been you know happening since the 1960s but the the switch to say you know we're we're actually going to use disabled embodiment as a way to examine normalcy Mm -hmm. that was like a big transfer and that there were other people doing this Mm -hmm. and then found out about the society for disability studies in the U.S. so all that all happened all at once. That's great and so now you're a professor
0: and I'm wondering how your methods of teaching now are, you know, education has shifted completely over the years. How are your methods of teaching different than what you experienced as a student in terms of methods, but also maybe in terms of knowledge than in content? Mm.
1: Yeah, I think maybe I was lucky that way in that I was always interested in more interpretive approaches to inquiry that weren't stuck in the cause effect rationality. Mm And I myself went to a very tiny liberal arts university for my undergrad, where I think the a confrontation with the act of interpretation was throughout all of the interdisciplinary training. And my own teaching, I think I have tried to really emphasize, even this year going through COVID and being everything on Zoom, I've been trying to orchestrate, like, how do we encounter the environment or representations of disability or the sense that is here? How do we then treat that as a moment to uncover the interpretive, um, assumptions that we must have undergone in order to know disabilities here. So yeah, I've been really lucky to have a great group of students. Mostly I teach just masters and uh, PhD students. Mm And we've been um, called them performatives, we bring in um, an experience of disability, and it could be one's personal experience or something you read in the newspaper or an event that happens, you know, in front of an elevator or a sign that you see. And we just try to use the readings, which are disability studies, as well as Black studies, feminist studies, et cetera, to bring alive how is embodiment being manifest? How is our conception of disability being deployed or called out in these moments? How do we even know we're... Seeing disability or hearing disability or experiencing disability? What cultural assumptions and values allow us to mark this moment as a disabling moment or a moment of disability and not mark another moment as such? So it's been, you know, even on Zoom, I've sort of been surprised a great year of working together with students to Mm -hmm. just encounter and re-encounter our own taken-for-granted understandings of normal embodiment and disability embodiment and trying to theorize that. Yeah. So, and that's what I do in almost all my classes, but under different themes. So I have a class called the cultural production of the self Mm -hmm. as a problem Mm -hmm. where different depictions of how we understand the self to be a problem. We bring those in and then theorize those together. This last term, I was just teaching a course called disability studies, interpretive methods, where... The appearance of disability becomes an interpretive moment. And how can we uncover the assumptions and values that allowed us to make that interpretation or have that experience? Oh, I'm teaching a new course, uh, Disability Studies and the Media. Mm -hmm. And uh, oh, Disability Studies and the Human Imaginary. That one is all the different theorists that the other people in my department who don't do disability studies, all the different theorists that they love, Fanon and Sylvia Winter and different anti-colonial theorists, We who don't necessarily imagine that they're teaching anything about disability studies, but we read them for what lessons they might bring to disability studies. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, that's a, another course. I
0: These are all great. They all sound like courses that... I would immediately register for as a student, but also the concepts that these courses pursue are things that I've been kind of thinking about and also in thinking about in reading your writing. And so one of those pieces that I was really um, taken aback by was the body as a problem of individuality, which was in um, The Reader by Joyce Boyce. And in that you quote, or you write, the appearance of disability must be noticed for its appearance to count as a parent. And you'd kind of touched on this already, but the idea of disability being apparent and noticing and noticing, requiring looking, but you know, seeing or not seeing is the problem, kind of that we face oftentimes in perceiving mm-hmm. bodies in space. And the question that I like wrote for you, you kind of already answered, but then contextualizing and then applying this issue to the current, the past year of us all operating on Zoom, how do you think that? this past year has changed the way we perceive others and perceive our
1: individual bodies and also disability virtually? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. I think I'm still trying to come to terms with that question. So I'm gonna back up and think about how I would Prior to teaching on Zoom or um, prior to the pandemic, when I would think about like the noticing of bodies and I think about social spaces So where I work, there is a subway station right below this big building and the subway station had sort of like torture chambers, like so nobody could skip in from the subway or skip into the subway to block people from not paying to go one way or the other. And they decided they were gonna remove those mechanisms and make it into a much more accessible paddle gate where you could just tap your card and it would open up. And then they put the access sign on it to say, this is much more accessible. Meanwhile, there's two stairs that come right before this now accessible paddle gate. But in either case, there's like the sense of like, who belongs and you notice, like as soon as movement is impeded, You sort of notice it as an individual, that person is having trouble getting through these turnstiles or through the paddle gate or up the stairs. And we notice it typically as something in a body, an individual body that isn't functioning in an appropriate fashion to sort of flow with the rest of everybody else through these gates. So that's a way I understand that we notice disability as an individualized issue and we sort of do that. So instead of noticing the stairs or the paddle gates or the torture chambers, I notice bodies of some individuals having troubles. And then if it happens to be because they have too big of a suitcase or they have a stroller with them. I say, oh, it's a stroller or, oh, it's the suitcase. Mm -hmm. But if I don't find those reasons, I think it's not that they're carrying a problem, they are a problem. So there's an interpretive transformation that my culture invites me to say, those who don't function in a way that goes with the flow have a problem for all practical purposes. That is, if you can't get rid of suitcase, baby carriage, something else. So now we're on Zoom. Mm -hmm. And I've grown up in a culture that tells me that it's to individualize those who don't go with the flow. But Zoom is highly sort of individualized. Like it puts us all into these boxes. Mm -hmm. We can turn off the sound and the volume and the picture. Yeah. So how do I now notice disability?
0: Yeah. Something that as students, we've been talking about in terms of using Zoom in a class setting is we are kind of limited to this rectangle, you know, and so it does eliminate certain barriers of being like, in terms of size, in terms of like power dynamics or like differentials and the way that we're positioned within a room. But then we think about proficiency and technology and access to technology, then we notice the differences in proficiency with you knowing how to use zoom or, you know, or the speaker quality or the camera quality that people have. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's what I've been thinking about, but I don't know if you could take it further.
1: Yeah. Well, even just the assumptions of like the visual demands of zoom are so massive, Mm -hmm. Like even how to look towards the camera, look towards others, scroll through like you have to be very visually mm-hmm. on top of things to make this work mm-hmm. and it really doesn't have any expectations for you not to be sighted mm-hmm. this and it has nothing built into it i do know i have blind friends who use zoom
0: mm-hmm
1: but it's very, you know, sort of a mechanical relationship to knowing that where the camera is turning the camera on or off. It's just so visually demanding. Mm -hmm. It is, it is. I think what I'm trying to get at here is with Zoom, we as
0: students will probably target or individualize those that aren't as proficient with Zoom as being those being of the older generation or those that don't really know how to use technology and those that can't monitor the chat at the same time as the waiting room as, you know, as Zoom in itself has spaces, you know, and it's just getting to them or like being able to go back and forth from these spaces. is also very challenging and demanding mm-hmm. yeah. of, our, of our vision of our site. Yeah. Oh, and like
1: the, the sense that you can flip screens, like mm-hmm. the agility of one's fingers One's knowledge of how to flip back and forth, all the rules, and then the vision. Like it's a highly physically demanding environment, physically. Mm-hmm. Even though it seems like we're just sitting in front of a screen, it's not so simple at all. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. very embodied. Mm-hmm just a, a completely different way of then moving to a building and getting through a building and sitting at the classroom but the agility mobility strength memory eyesight hearing to make this all work definitely it's, it's high-end demands here mm-hmm. yeah and then in, in that same essay
0: that you wrote about the body as a problem of individuality you also touch on the Spatial and Education Organization of universities. And I was wondering how does the university spatially frame disability as a problem? And can you give like an example?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, a good example to start with is when I arrived in the place that I work at now, which is the third or fourth largest building on U of T campus. And it used to have thousands of people that go through it every day uh, using six elevators. So the, everyone comes through a, double sets of doors and uses six elevators with very little milling about space. You're just on the elevator up to where you're going and then you might mill about, mm-hmm. but there was the icon of access on a couple doors on a couple washrooms and maybe one or two like student service spaces. And it's really interesting to think like that we could, you know, label just one or two doors, one or two offices with an icon of access, you know, the blue and white sticker of the, the wheelchair user. Mm-hmm. The, the way that sticker works is through the assumption that everywhere else, you, know, you don't need to think about wheelchair access or any other form of non-normative embodiment. Like that's the only way we can seek out the icon of access is because we're assuming a background order of exclusion, which would make a whole bunch of different bodies, problem bodies, not because the body has problems, but because the, the environment is announcing all over the place that it is built for particular bodies. So the icon works only in so far as we, as those who are present in the environment assume a basic level of inaccessibility is normal. Mm -hmm. Like we can't, you can't just put an icon and say, oh, well, look for the icon, unless you assume that the background order is an exclusionary order. And if the background order is an exclusionary order, that means that certain people are made problems to the order and those problem people have to be trained to go look for the icon. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, Then it turns out, like this building I was working in, that they put icons on, this is back in 2006, there were icons on really inaccessible washrooms and doorways that weighed so much you couldn't open them. And so you say, well, I think you should take down the icon. There's nothing accessible about this doorway. You can't get through here with a wheelchair. The door is really heavy. Why is this icon here? And the reason given would be, well, something's better than nothing. So that also is another way to constitute certain people as problems. They just need a little something to indicate that they are a problem that's barely thought about. And you roll towards the icon or you move towards the icon only to discover that you're not really being taken into account. So there's this kind of call by the environment that then says, what's your problem? Mm-hmm. If you put an icon of access on a really super inaccessible door, you're really just telling a person, you know, yes. we don't want to think about you. Why put this at all? I think there's a lot of ways that the environment announces that you're a problem. If you're handed a, a course syllabus or you look up your course syllabus and it has just Everything there, and then at the end of it, it says, and if you have any trouble with this, go consult the disability access office. It's named something different on every campus, but go access accessibility services. Mm -hmm. Well, the assumption there is something like, well, I must as an individual be outside of the understanding of the classroom if I have to go to an office in order to come back and access the classroom. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of ways we have of saying disability is a problem, it's an individual problem that should be taken care of in individual ways. Even the access statements on course syllabi mm-hmm. can function to just convince, to continue to convince people that this is an individual's problem, and individuals need to know to go seek their individual rights, mm-hmm. as opposed to this is a collective uh, endeavor, we make normalcy and non-normalcy. And we could do it differently, Mm -hmm. but just sending people off to the office of accommodation doesn't necessarily change anything. I'm not saying get rid of offices of accommodation. I'm Mm -hmm. just saying, if that's all we've got to offer, then what we're teaching everybody is that disability is an individual problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So through the built environment, through the policy environment and then through knowledge is the other way that I think disabled people are constructed as outsiders. So if you're learning math, you're not necessarily learning it from a blind perspective or from the angles that a wheelchair meets the wall or something like that. Like we don't usually build disability in as a standpoint of or sit point of knowledge production. It's always this afterthought. Oh, what about disability? Not often treating the embodied lived experience of blindness, deafness, different mobility, different ways of learning. We don't treat that as a way of knowing about the world. So as a place where knowledge gets produced. And then a fourth way is interactionally. We just make this assumption that a hello begins with eyeballs or something verbal or reading takes place privately or rapidly. And it isn't something that we could do like together. So I think interactionally is another way we produce a sense of who's normal and who's not.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, this idea of what we design and prepare for, what's primary, what's secondary, and what's implemented out of compliance rather than out of desire, or what we are innately drawn to as like the initial thoughts that we have to approach to designing a course or designing a space or approach going into a social interaction. I think those mm-hmm. are all really important and should definitely like be shifted. This framework should definitely be shifted. There's another piece that I read of yours. It was in Amy Hemray's uh, Designing Collective Access, and it was entitled, You Can't Accommodate Everyone, uh, Everybody, You Got to Draw the Line Somewhere. Could you speak a little bit more about the relational ideas of fitting and misfitting and what role the built environment could play here?
1: I don't recall this. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, I think that the claim that I was really interested in is designers produce misfit when they make
1: claims. Um, okay, so that's it, Amy Hemery yes. and Rosemary Garland Thompson. Correct. And yeah. I think
0: there, you kind of touched on this already, but you can't accommodate for everyone when you design. So you might as well just design for the normative, what you know, what's already there. And this idea rather than designing for disability, at least we did something kind of idea which creates misfit bodies and misfitting ideas and feelings and I'm wondering if you could speak more on this or if there are thoughts on strategies of ways to progress these ideas and kind of shift this framework. Mm
1: -hmm. I think what interests me a lot Mm -hmm. is how justifications are generated to sort of maintain the status quo. Mm -hmm. So when the misfit has been designed Or the exclusion has been solidified. I'm really interested. How do people not notice that, that we just did that? And secondly, how do they interpret or justify the act of exclusion? The not noticing trains everybody's body to be in the world in a particular way. So those doors I was talking about to get into the building, they were so poorly designed that almost everybody was touched by those doors and constricted by those doors. Not only did it block people from getting onto the subway for free, but it made everybody get into these tiny little turnstiles to be squeezed, to feel their movement impeded, to, to risk, like if anything went wrong with that little turn thing, there was no... There is no safety in it either.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So for us not to notice built blockage as misfitting so many
0: mm-hmm.
1: means that we have to have our, here, we would be the normals, mm-hmm. the so-called normals mm-hmm. would have to sort of train themselves to have an alienated relationship to their own bodies. Mm-hmm. So those who are made so that they can sort of get through, even though it's tricky, they can get through the technology, the environment is constraining you and holding you back and, and, and potentially dangerous. And to do that day after day after day means to alienate oneself from their own embodiment, Mm -hmm. then to not notice it. And then to justify it. Oh, you finally notice that this environment is really poorly designed. Now, why is justification the next move? And how does justification sort of serve as a re-education of an inadequate environment? So that's what I'm really interested in is like, how do we not notice Mm -hmm. everybody we've made go missing? Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: then how do we convince ourselves that this is okay? And I know all along the way, my word we needs to be questioned. But I think it is kind of tied up with like the white supremacy of normal man, as Sylvia Winter would say, that requires us to go through this diseducation, like this education where we are not in tune with our bodies, not in tune with each other, not in tune with who's missing. Right.
0: Well, as a concluding question, I was wondering, what are you looking forward to in the future of your field?
1: Hmm so many things there's so many great students who have been part of my life and have moved on or doing so many things so I feel like there's a lot happening I'm looking forward to supporting I feel like I'm gonna be supportive of others in what they want to do there's so many different writing projects I want to do mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to getting out of this pandemic and back with people I think um, an arts angle in disability studies is something that's been nurtured through this time of being away from others. So I'm hoping that comes through on the other side. I just wish we could treat each other better and be on the other side of this pandemic. Lots of good things in the future, I hope. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, thank you so much for all your words and thoughts and ideas.
1: Yeah, thanks, Julia. This was fun to be able to do this.
0: Thank you for listening to an episode of the Constructing Differences podcast. To find out more about this project, visit representationsofdifference.com or at representationsofdifference on Instagram. Special thanks to Jan Deirdrich for helping me through the IRB approval process, Dr. Owen for provoking my thoughts on solidarity and Professor Lori Brown for being my mentor on this project and so many others. Finally, thank you to all the participants who agreed to speak with me on Zoom throughout the month of April. Your time, words and thoughts were greatly appreciated.